Most kidney donors and recipients are in favor of exchanging personal health information before scheduling a living organ donor transplant. A study appearing in an upcoming issue of the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology also reveals that while the vast majority of kidney donors and recipients were in favor of exchanging information, transplant professionals' opinions on information sharing varied greatly and tended to be far more conservative. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Director of Policy and Public Affairs, Paul Smedberg, interviews study authors Ahmed Garg, MD, from the University of Western Ontario and Lawson Health Research Institute in London, Canada, as well as William Harmon, MD, of the Children's Hospital in Boston. So, Dr. Garg, could you describe what led you to, to do this study And what are some of the complex issues involved in living kidney donation? Thanks, Paul. And as I mentioned, I'm joined by the other two authors on the paper as well with me, Ann Young and Patricia Hiesel-Abes. And essentially, there is a very rich uh, tradition and history around information sharing in kidney transplantation. As you may know, in deceased donation, we, we don't share information with the intended recipient. And in living uh, donation, a trend in many countries, including Canada and the U.S., is to have different donor and recipient teams in terms of the evaluation process for the two members. And the reason for that is they want the healthcare teams to be in a position to advocate for each of those members looking at their case separately. So in our program, just like many other programs, I as a nephrologist will see the person who's coming forward for living donation and the potential recipient is being seen by my colleagues. And if we both give them the green light, then they go forward to have the transplant. So in that setting, sometimes you have a situation where personal health information comes up that may impact the outcomes of the transplant. So, for example, for a living donor, we now are accepting living donors who may have isolated hypertension. They have a high blood pressure treated with a single agent. And so that's a practice that's been fairly new, and we're gaining information on that. And when we have the discussion with the living donor, we talk about uh, this issue and how in recent years we've accepted people like yourselves as donors, and they've done well in the short term, and in the long term we're collecting information to confirm they're in good health. Interesting enough that that information may be of also relevance to the recipient who's going to be accepting the gift. So they may want to know, for example, that the potential donor had high blood pressure. So then the the issue that comes up is that the potential donor has personal health information that may impact their long-term health and also potentially impact how the graft will do in the recipient. So they have that personal information, and at the same time, it would be reasonable for the recipient to know that information to make an informed decision about whether to accept the gift or not. And so that was the basis for this study that we did to try to understand attitudes towards sharing personal health information where you have people have the right to keep their personal information confidential and at the same time the information should be shared uh, to make a reasonable decision about whether to proceed. Paul, can I just ask one one final comment? And one of the things that's happened recently is that now we've had a greater um, emphasis on paired exchange. That's kind of relatively new practice, where if a donor and recipient are not compatible, then we allow, if you will, swapping of, of kidneys between pairs. 
And so that also creates interesting information um, sharing discussions as well, because what is reasonable for a kidney that's shared between pairs with, with uh, donors and recipients across both pairs? And so in some centers, little information is shared to simply say that this is a fair exchange in terms of the expected outcomes, and other times there's been discussion whether more information should be shared. So that was the background by which we, uh, for which we um, did this study. And how strongly did physicians feel about keeping that information private? What we found is that when we assessed the attitudes of potential donors, potential recipients, and physicians, donors and recipients are generally quite willing to share their personal health information across the other intended party and across uh, potential pairs and paired exchange, whereas healthcare professionals were much more divided. Some felt that sharing was a, a good idea, others didn't. And our belief is that obviously these are very complex issues and uh, transplant professionals come with their own experience around different cases that they dealt with. And so they may be very well shaped by those cases and why they feel that such information should or should not be shared. Dr. Garg, currently there is no consensus on what information should be disclosed between a potential transplant donor and recipient. You know, you obviously decided to under, you know, take on this study and investigate it. Please tell us what you and your team uh, have discovered. When we did our study, we were trying to determine what the preferences of patients, both potential recipients and potential donors, some of who have started the evaluation process but had not yet uh, undergone a transplant, what their preferences were in terms of information sharing, and then health professionals. Both the potential donors and potential recipients in settings of traditional living donation where the um, donor and recipient know each other, they're a loved one, they may be a genetic relationship, but there's definitely an emotional relationship, are willing to share information about themselves if that information is important for knowledge about the success of transplant with the other person. And they're quite agreeable to sharing. And we also found even in the paired exchange setting where the pairs are strangers, they don't know each other, that even in that circumstance, they're willing to share information if that information is relevant to, know, uh, to understanding how the transplant's going to do. Uh, though health professionals have been in circumstances where they understand how this is much more nuanced and how there are examples where this information, if shared, can sometimes be quite difficult and creates challenges. And in that circumstance, uh, again, we noticed that the health professionals who are likely shaped by their previous experiences, were much more uh, divided on their opinions on whether information should be shared, both in the traditional living kidney donation uh, setting and as well as in paired exchange settings. And, and Dr. Harmon, you've been involved in this area for a long time. Um, you're well-regarded, you know, expert in this area. What did you find interesting about this study? couple of things. Uh, first of all, this, uh, this is a very important study because it's the first of its kind in which we're actually asking the attitudes of, of both the donors and recipients. So I think this, this uh, study should be leading to additional studies to clarify this. And if, in fact, the, the, the studies confirm uh, important aspects of the donor-recipient relationship that, that haven't yet been uncovered that would make transplants better, then we should be changing our clinical guidelines to, to accommodate those things. Uh, there were a couple of limitations with, with the study and the study design, but 
that's not unusual in, in a first study. So the fact that the study was done and the fact that the study came up with what I would suspect were probably were findings that, that many readers are going to find um, unexpected. I think that's, that's a very good start. The, the uh, broad approval of both the donors and recipients about sharing information was uh, a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't think it would be quite as high as it was. It was almost unanimous in, in some of the settings, particularly with uh, living donors with family members. The extent of the agreement of the professionals actually surprised me. I expected it to be far less, closer to maybe 25% rather than you know over 50%. So I was a bit surprised by these and and uh, by these findings, and I think that uh, other readers are also going to be uh, surprised by them. And like all good studies, it's going to lead to some controversy, and then and then hopefully other studies. I think one of the main limitations is that, and something that may explain the differences in perspective of the professionals and the donors and recipients, is that the professionals have been through this before, and they've seen the pitfalls, and they've seen the unintended consequences that have come up when some information about the donor is exposed. They've seen donors put in somewhat compromising positions. They've seen recipients get second thoughts about whether they should go forward with it or, worst of all, whether they should have gone forward with it after they've, they've done it. So, obviously, the professionals are more experienced. The recipients, to be quite honest, most of those recipients did not have a defined living donor, and they'd be very anxious to get a, a living donor. And as I think we'll discuss, there are real advantages to using a living donor over a deceased donor. So they would probably share anything that would get them into a better position to, to get it. So they're not going to be ashamed of anything that's gone on in the past, and they're probably going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get a donor for themselves. So I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised that they agreed. The donor candidates that were interviewed here are obviously generous, supportive people, who have come forward to basically say, yeah, I'll give up a kidney. And under those circumstances, they're giving up part of their body. They're, they're certainly not going to be in a position to say, well, uh, you know, I'm going to hide something else. You'll notice that the gender profile of the donor candidates was, was strongly female. Women are much more likely to be living donors because they take care of other people. Uh, you know, I think this is, this is clear. And this group, this group matched that profile. I think it was 70% were women. So these are generous people who, who basically are saying, I'm going to do this and it's going to be good for somebody else and you know I have nothing to hide and so on and so forth. They haven't gone through a donor valuation yet and they haven't found out that maybe they have something that they didn't know about or maybe when they really get down to it, they're going to have to explain things that they hadn't even thought were important before and so on and so forth. So the group that was sampled here was a group that may have been more likely to come up with positive answers about sharing the information. So I think that partly explains the difference. I think it's pretty obvious that the next step is to do the same study with people who already have received transplants and people who have already been donors. And obviously then you have to include people who have gone through a donor evaluation 
and haven't been approved. So as I say, this is a very good study because it's leading the way to other studies. I think um, the authors, if they haven't already done it, are, are probably already thinking of, you know, we need to extend this to other locations, to other groups of people who have been through uh, donation and been through, uh, you know, have received transplants and so on and so forth. So I was surprised by the numbers. I think it's very provocative. Um, I think it's somewhat understandable, and I think... Is some of what you described, do you think that that explains why the preferences of transplant professionals are so different from those of, of their patients? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, yes, their experiences have led them to understand that there are circumstances where, where you wouldn't want to do this, and they're going to be very cautious. I think a, a, a second element for the professionals is that they understand how comprehensive the donor evaluation is and how it will uncover problems that maybe the donor candidate hasn't either thought about recently or even knew about. You know, in various programs, the percentage of potential donors who pass is obviously somewhat varied depending upon the program, but it's not unusual for a program to fail a third or maybe 40% of the donor candidates. Uh, now, these are not people who have major medical problems. If they've had major medical problems, they probably wouldn't even get to the donor evaluation stage. But, but there are people who may be overweight, who may have high blood pressure, who may have some kidney problem they weren't aware of, who may have a family history of um, some problem that could eventually cause problems for them in the future and so on and so on and so forth. So the professionals are used to seeing people fail the donor evaluation. And so they know that there's going to be a lot to explain under some circumstances. Okay. They've also been through the circumstance when the donor has clearly said, I don't want to expose this. And that leads to a, to a fairly critical position when there's something in the donor that you say to yourself, well, Maybe I should let the recipient know, but the donors told me I can't do that. You, sometimes the donor has been put into a position of being forced to come forward. And, and this can happen quite routinely in family situations where, you know, your brother needs a kidney and it's time for you to do this and you're a good match and so on and so forth. And the person really can't, doesn't want to do it. Um, so our focus as physicians is to protect the donor. And the donor evaluation is done primarily to assure that the donor will not be harmed by being a donor and living the rest of their life with one kidney. Secondarily, it's done to assure that the donor organ will be sufficient for the recipient and will not cause other problems in the recipient. Right. So, so there's a lot of circumstances that happen in the donor evaluation that candidates who haven't gone through it yet haven't haven't really thought about. And the professionals are clearly oriented, as, as it's already been pointed out, into being the independent donor advocate and advocating only for the donor, not for the recipient. In addition, what, what was mentioned and, and um, uh, has been true is that we don't put potential recipients of deceased donor candidates in this same position. I, I think all of us uh, have, in some circumstances, been put in the position where the potential recipient at the time wants to know more about the donor than we're willing to, to give them. 
and it, you see that terrible position you put this potential recipient who very much wants the transplant in, and now they're wondering, well, is there something about this candidate that I shouldn't do, uh, that would mean that I, I shouldn't get the transplant, and so on and so forth. And if you start giving the circumstances of death or the circumstances of the potential donor's health to them, they can figure out even who it is. I mean, unfortunately, we've had circumstances uh, of that happening. And, and so we've been used to having a wall between the donor and recipient. And quite frankly, we are required to do that, certainly in the United States. There's no question that we must protect the donor and we must keep the donor's information in most circumstances confidential. There are a few uh, circumstances where we're put into an, a terribly awkward position, and I can mention those uh, as we go through this. But there's many reasons why I think the professionals have been oriented to having this wall between the donor and recipient, which I think has been thought to be you know, a very important part of uh, protecting both the donor and recipient. When we say that a donor is a satisfactory donor, we're telling the recipient that we've done these evaluations and we're confident about them and that you know this, this, this organ that they're going to receive will be good for them. And most of us aren't willing to go much beyond, beyond that level. Dr. Garg, what are the health privacy regulations in place in regard to sharing information between donors uh, and recipients? So in general, with all patients in many healthcare systems, including Canada and the U.S., there's legislation that protects the confidentiality of personal health information. So that already exists. One of the unique issues around transplantation is that you have two individuals who are involved and impacted by the transplant. So well, the unique thing that we often discuss in transplantation is that it's not only a consideration of the individual patient in front of you keeping having the right to keep their personal health information confidential. Also, there's expectation when you get informed consent for a procedure like transplant that it's reasonable to share information that's going to impact the success of that transplant that any reasonable person would want to know. So that's where perhaps sometimes, in some cases, there's a little bit of tension because everyone has the right to keep their personal information private. At the same time, Donors and recipients also have the right to information if that information is expected to impact the outcomes of transplantation. And so uh, bringing together those two considerations is an area which often fosters uh, debate and, in this case, research. Um, Dr. Harmon, how important is it to communicate with family members of potential recipients or donors? Well, in other words, here you're sharing a great deal of information between the donor and uh, the recipient. You're, you're talking to them. Is it your experience that successful recipients or donors also have the support of family members? And at what point do you engage those family members in this process? Well, sometimes and frequently the, in a living donor situation, uh, uh, the, both the donor and recipient are from the same family. And obviously, there are both supports and tensions that arise within the family. You want to take care of the recipient. You don't want to damage or hurt or in some way cause problems for the donor. And within the family, that tension arises just as it does within the transplant team. 
Uh, as Dr. Garg had pointed out, within the transplant team, we now have had to establish, and it's required in the United States, separate teams that do the evaluation of the donor and recipient, just so the recipient's needs don't overcome the concern about the safety of the donation for the, for the candidate donor. Uh, in the United States, we are required to identify an independent donor advocate. And recently, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services here in the United States, which have to certify that the transplant programs have made site visits to assure that every transplant program has an appropriate independent donor advocate in place and that independent donor advocate's responsibilities are clearly stated and, in fact, that that independent donor advocate has the independent authority to say no to the donation without giving information to anybody else. So within the United States, there's very clear concern for the separation of the evaluation of the, of the donor and recipient. Within a family, there's obviously no safeguards in that circumstance, and the pressures to donate in some cases may override the concern for the donor safety. So the family tensions are both important for the support of the donor and recipient and, you know, raised to new levels other issues. Now, you raise a very, very interesting point. You, in your previous question, you pointed out that there is no consensus on how much information should be shared. That's actually not quite true. Uh, whether there's a consensus or not, there are now regulations in certain circumstances that we do this. In uh, the United States, on the UNOS system, uh, we have a category of deceased donors that are known as extended criteria donors, or ECD. These are donors whose kidneys may not be ideal, and in fact, you can predict that the outcome of these transplants are not going to be as successful as more standard transplants. So the ideal donor for uh, a deceased donor transplant is age about 21. It's somebody who's had an isolated accident, has had a fatal brain injury, has never had any other medical problems, has never had operations, and so on and so forth, and has no infectious diseases to transmit. Obviously, that's not the donor that most people get. And in fact, uh, as the population gets older and as the accident rates go down and so on and so forth, and as the need for more donors extends, the transplant programs have extended who they're going to accept. So we're now accepting deceased donors who have had a history of hypertension or may have had cardiovascular disease, or may even have had diabetes, and so on and so forth. Donors we never would have accepted 30 years ago, and that's just because the need is so high. So we can predict that if the donor is 60 years old and has a 15-year history of hypertension and five years of diabetes, that that kidney is not going to be as good as the ideal donors. Now, is it fair to give that kidney to somebody who's waiting on the list. Well, when we can predict and when we put people in what's called this extended criteria donor category, we have to have permission from the recipient to use that kidney from them. And we don't put the recipients in the position of saying, I've got a kidney for you, that's the good news. And the bad news is it's a deceased donor with extended criteria donor and you've got you know an hour to decide. What we do is get permission from donors, consent from donors ahead of time saying, would you accept a donor from the extended criteria donor list? So 
So donors in that list, again, are, are, are kidneys that are probably not going to last the average time for a deceased donor kidney. If you're, say, 70 years old and you're on the list and, and your life expectancy isn't that long, you might be more willing to get off dialysis and to accept a donor kidney that may only last five or six years than if you're a 25-year-old uh, candidate on, on the list. So ahead of time, you say, yes, I'll accept extended criteria donor or no, I won't. And then when the kidney becomes available, you've already got consent from that donor. So that's that. That's one category where we share at least general information that this is not the ideal uh, candidate for this. Now, in a, in a more uh, controversial area, there are donors who may transmit infections to recipients. And the Centers for Disease Control in the United States in the early 90s wrote guidelines as to how to identify these people by their lifestyles. Um, and the concern, obviously, was in transmission of HIV. And the goal was to avoid any potential transmission. Obviously, it will be fatal if it's, if it's transmitted. Many other viruses are transmitted with transplants, but this is one that's got everybody's intention. And so the CDC described lifestyle issues that would categorize people who would be called high-risk donors. Uh, and um, there was a somewhat of a consensus in the transplant community that we should follow these, but as, as conditions changed and as styles changed and so on and so forth, many programs tended to downplay these issues. Unfortunately, about two years ago, there was HIV transmitted from a donor to several recipients. This was a donor, this is a deceased donor, this is a donor uh, whose uh, HIV was not detected, did not have antibody, uh, unfortunately had been infected just a few weeks before donation, so had not yet developed antibody and therefore wasn't identified. And quickly, the, the uh, HHS in the United States requested that UNOS pass a regulation that, that these high-risk donors be identified and that specific consent be obtained from the recipient for these donors. And that was highly controversial within UNOS, but it did pass. Now, the criteria are a man who's had sex with another male within the last five years, somebody who has had sex in exchange for money or drugs, somebody who's been incarcerated, or somebody who is currently incarcerated, or somebody uh, who has had an intravenous, intramuscular, subcutaneous injection of anything, for, not for medicinal purposes. Now, that may have been appropriate in 1992, but in 2009 or 2010, lifestyles have changed. Same-sex marriage is, is approved in many states. So if you have two males who are married to each other, and one of them needs a kidney transplant, and the other one wants to be the donor, you must inform the recipient that the donor is a high-risk donor because he's had sex with that person who's going to receive the transplant. You can see how this gets into very strange circumstances. Yeah. So those regulations are required not only for deceased donors, but actually they were developed for living donors. And so we could be in the situation where we work up a family member who is gay, who has not let his family know, and then we're put in the position, we're obligated to tell the recipient, this is a high-risk donor you're going to receive. So there are these kinds of things that happen in donor evaluations that may, in our best judgment, not affect the transplant, but puts us in the posi position 
of exposing things that the donor doesn't want to have exposed. So we do have regulations. We, may, we certainly don't have consensus, because I said this is highly controversial. But you can see the kinds of circumstances we get into once we've gotten into a very intimate position with the donor candidate, and that candidate may not want to have all of that information transmitted. And yet there are regulations that require us to do this. So these are not cut-and-dried situations. Dr. Garg, what questions do recipients most often ask about the risk of transplantation? You know, what's kind of an interesting thing is that it's actually a bit of an awkward conversation to have a discussion about recipients about the risk of donation. We certainly provide a lot of literature and we discuss broadly what the risks are. But in truth, it is an awkward conversation because imagine yourself, you're in a circumstance where recipients don't want any harm to come to their donors in any capacity. And it's it's sometimes an awkward thing for them to receive a gift where someone has a potential for harm. Even though, again, I just would like to emphasize for your listeners that donation and transplantation is a safe uh, procedure. And we, as Dr. Harmon has mentioned, we go through extra efforts to ensure that this will occur safely with minimal risk. But it is an awkward conversation. So generally, recipients want to know that the living donor is going to be well after the donation, after the donation process and won't have any major risk of harm. As well, something that's reassuring both the donors and recipients is that studies have shown that psychologically, donors feel very good about having helped a loved one. And even in those rare circumstances where the transplant doesn't work as well as we thought, and maybe it doesn't work at all in some cases, donors still feel, feel very good about going through the process of, of doing their best to help a loved one. And so that's something also we share with recipients when we're discussing the issues. Dr. Gard, does the evaluation process often identify health risks unknown to the donor? So I wouldn't say often. So, again, I evaluate the living donors here in our program. But on occasion, something does come up. So in terms of the standard tests we do for a person who comes forward, as Dr. Harmon mentioned, first of all, we ask some even simple questions on the phone that automatically would exclude someone from donation if they've had a recent cancer, if they have severe hypertension, diabetes. Those are things that automatically we would say, this would be too risky. We wouldn't feel comfortable uh, having you having one kidney removed uh, in terms of your health. But once people uh, pass that initial uh, screening process and they come forward, the tests that are, be done, that are done are typically a blood test to look at compatibility of the organ with the recipient things called cross-matching and blood group compatibility. And then we do tests of kidney function to look at the kidney health, including looking at how well the kidneys are filtering the blood through simple blood tests, and occasionally we'll do an additional test to look at how well the kidneys are filtering the blood. And we look for protein amounts, uh, protein in the urine. We all have a little bit, but if there's large amounts, it may suggest that removing a kidney from someone may not be safe. We look for blood in the urine, which occasionally can be a, uh, an indication that there might be something happening in the kidney, which, which would make it unsafe to remove one kidney. We look at how the kidneys look visually on imaging, and we look also at how many arteries supply the kidneys, because that has implications for the surgeon and how they approach the surgery. And uh, we, as mentioned, we do a number of tests for latent infection, because we want to minimize any risk of transmission of infection including things like HIV tests, hepatitis tests. And through that process, occasionally we will discover things. 
So again, most people don't have anything discovered, but occasionally we'll have things like, for example, we do a chest X-ray and we notice a spot on the lung that no one knew about. Or we do an ultrasound of the kidneys and we identify something odd about the kidneys. Or something to consider, often loved ones of people who need kidneys are genetically related and occasionally they may share certain kidney diseases with the um, recipient. So when we do the uh, kidney test, we notice that they may have early, very mild form of the disease that's affecting the recipient or a different kind of disease. So in, the, in those circumstances, again, things we do for donors, before they even come forward, we actually ask them to do a few things. We ask them to actually get their um, insurance in place, something that may be interesting to your listeners, that particularly in Canada, even though we have a universal health care system, identifying certain things could have implications for things like life insurance. And so before we do all this rigorous testing, we ask people to get their insurance in order so that if we do find certain things, that that doesn't have any implications for their insurance. One of the potential benefits, though, is that by doing all these tests to ensure someone's very healthy, if we do identify something in those rare circumstances, we often have identified it very early where there are lots of treatment opportunities. And so there are also opportunities to keep people in good health through this screening process. Earlier in our discussion, uh, Dr. Harmon mentioned that he was surprised by some of the facts that were brought forward as part of your study, conclusions in your study, were there things that you and your team were surprised about at the conclusion of the study once you started analyzing the information? Well, we actually were surprised about how willing donors and recipients were to sharing information with strangers in the setting of paired exchange. When we all discussed this project beforehand, we had anticipated that attitudes towards sharing personal health information with loved ones would be very good. People would be very willing to share in those circumstances. But that in the setting of, uh, again, paired exchange, where a person's not compatible of giving an organ to their loved one, so they create a scenario where they give the organ to someone else and that other pair gives the organ to their loved one, we had thought that actually there may be much more reluctance to sharing information in that circumstance. And we were surprised that, in fact, even in those, that circumstance, people were quite willing to share information. But Dr. Harmon, you mentioned UNOS uh, earlier in our talk. How do you think organizations like UNOS and CDC and others are going to respond to this study? Well, uh, UNOS does not want to set clinical practice guidelines. And in fact, when the issues came up about safety of donors and so on and so forth, UNOS had several committees meet and so on and so forth, but felt that it was important for professional societies to be the ones that develop the guidelines. So UNOS is not likely to set any specific regulations or even patterns, I don't think, with its various members. UNOS has a very diverse leadership and very diverse committee structure, and it obviously has donors in its committees and on its board that has recipients and so on and so forth. They will find this uh, this information very interesting. I doubt that it will lead to regulations. I think it's going to be more likely that these kinds of debates will arise within the professional societies, such as the American Society of Nephrology, to help us figure out what is the best thing to do for the various donors and, and recipients. Dr. Gard, one thing that struck me, I, I looked at a summary of your, your study 
And I noticed that four out of the five uh, respondents, um, you know, responded favorably to, you know, you know, the sharing of the information. Did that strike you as well? Yeah, exactly. And again, I think where this information might be helpful as um, programs and policies get formulated is in the area of paired exchange. In Canada, uh, we have a relatively new program in this regard, and in many other countries, it's new. And uh, again, when we've seen what's been happening in other countries, people have been um, using more a model of deceased donation in terms of information sharing in that regard. So uh, when you're sharing information across the pair, they're using the approach where they will indicate that this is uh, safe, reasonable, and that the kidneys of a uh, comparable quality as the care that's being received in the exchange. And that's about all the information they're sharing in some circumstances. Uh, and so where, where we think this might be helpful is as, as uh, countries and uh, health policymakers and transplant professionals in those countries set regulations around the sharing of information in paired exchange, which is relatively new, uh, this type of information may lead to additional work that informs those policies. And Dr. Garg, I asked Dr. Harmon how a group like UNOS here in the United States or, or CDC might respond to this study. How do you feel transplant organizations in Canada and your transplant colleagues uh, will respond to the findings in this initial study? Well, I think it might prompt discussion about, again, the issue of uh, what is reasonable information to share that impacts the transplant outcomes, what's the best method of sharing it, and how to obtain informed consent to do it. So, for example, some of the, the example that was brought up nicely by Dr. Harmon, where if there is a potential risk of health behaviors for putting someone at higher risk of HIV, how do you then make the potential donor comfortable and ensure that they're comfortable sharing that information. And if they're not, then finding a way to say that this is just not possible. And so I think in that regard, it's going to help us think about the issues. Uh, as Dr. Harmon mentioned, we do get sometimes into thorny, complex discussions, particularly around certain pieces of health information. And this just may help physicians realize that in, in some circumstances, actually patients are, much, are quite willing to share the information and might help us guide how we approach those patients to get consent to share the information. Well, Dr. Garg and Dr. Harmon, we really want to thank you for being with us here today. This is such an important issue and one that, as more research is done in this area, uh, highlights the importance of, of transplantation, uh, particularly with people with kidney disease, as a possible uh, long-term treatment. And we want to thank you for your time. And Dr. Garg and your team, thank you for your study. Well, thank you very much for your interest. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology. The ideas and opinions expressed by participants in ASN Kidney News podcasts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the society. To lead the fight against kidney disease, ASN helps its 11,000 members provide high-quality care to patients, conduct cutting-edge research, and educate the next generations of kidney care professionals. To learn more about ASN or Kidney News, please visit the Society's website at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.